Hi, my name is Luke Schmelzer. I'm the church planter and one of the future elders of Shepherd Reform Baptist Church. Uh, we are continuing today our study through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is the confession of faith that we're adopting as a church plant to be the, the foundation of our unity and doctrine and practice. We're doing a series of videos between Mario and I to give all of us a, a more firm foundation of understanding of, of what we're confessing to believe and committing to hold one another accountable to, especially Mario and I as the future elders. And so as we've been going through these chapters of the Baptist Confession, we're studying today chapters 15 and 16. We've been going through the various aspects of our salvation, um, our salvation through Christ, our mediator, our uh, election and effectual calling, our being justified and adopted into God's family, our being sanctified through true faith. And today we're considering chapter 15 of repentance unto life and salvation and chapter 16 of good works. These are two chapters that, again, work together in giving us a fuller understanding of our salvation, what we are turning from and what we are turning to in the new life that God has given us through faith in Christ. And so as we've done in the previous videos, I'll go through and I'll read one paragraph at a time of these two chapters, and I'll go back and I'll explain the lines as necessary, giving some illustration and explanation as, as possible. And this is um, a, designed to be a very quick overview. We could obviously go into each one of these paragraphs with a lot more depth. We could walk through the, the various verse quotations and the proof texts that are attached to each paragraph to show how these paragraphs are summarizing the scripture of teaching, but they'll have to be uh, coming down the line at a future date. So, chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. Here is paragraph 1. Such of the elect as are converted in riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature, and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling gives them repentance unto life. So you could summarize all of this chapter, Repentance Unto Life, with uh, one of the questions from the Baptist Catechism. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with full endeavor after new obedience, a commitment to a new life and faith, turning from sin and turning to Christ. So that's to summarize all of what we'll read here. And this first one, it speaks of those elect, those of, of God's chosen people that he has ordained to save in the course of history, those who will be truly saved, those who are converted sometimes at riper years, there are some people who come to their faith older in life, uh, that God had allowed them to live sometimes for many, many years until the point of their conversion late in life. For they had spent a long time. Uh, all of us at some point were unregenerate. All of us at some point were not born again, did not trust in Christ for our salvation, did not believe and confess the gospel and seek to obey God. All of us at various times, from various lengths of times, lived in that state of rebellion and sin. 
but God in his good timing, for those whom he has chosen to save will bring us to salvation through his effectual calling, his effective conversion of us sinners, giving us a new heart, a new life. We've discussed that in previous chapters. Paragraph two, whereas there's none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalence of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling would be renewed through repentance unto salvation. So whereas none of us as fallen men and women, as children of Adam, as children of wrath, the scripture says, whereas none of us do what is perfectly good and do not sin, even the best of us, through the, the power of sin, through the temptations of the flesh and our ongoing weaknesses, all of us fall into sins of one degree or another. Yet all of us uh, are underneath the condemnation of our sins. God, through His covenant of grace, through our election in Christ Jesus, our salvation provided by His righteous life, His atoning death and glorious resurrection, he has provided for us so that those who are saved, we who believe in Christ, though we sin, though we fall, we are renewed through repentance unto salvation. Not that repentance itself is what saves, but that in our turning away from the sins that we once loved, we are manifesting the salvation that God is working in our hearts and in our lives, that we that we who are being saved by the grace of God have been provided for, that he has given us the grace and the strength and a changed heart and desire so that we do turn from the things we once loved to what is true and what is good. Paragraph 3. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrence, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose endeavor by the supplies of the Spirit to walk before God and unto all and well-pleasing in all things. So this saving repentance, this repentance that accompanies our salvation, is a gospel grace. It is something that comes to us through the Holy Spirit's transforming work in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. That repentance and faith, though are distinct, they always come together. There is never someone who has true faith and does not repent. And no one ever truly repents without the work of God's grace and giving them faith. So that we who are being saved, whom God grants this gospel grace of repentance, made sensible by the Holy Spirit of the evils of our sin, that our eyes are open to see the, the wickedness of the things that we have done and our guilt before a holy and righteous God, and turning now to see Christ, to trust in Christ for our salvation, we come to him humbly with sorrow for our sin, that we, that we hate the things that we've done against others, against ourselves, and above all, against God and His holy law, the way we've dishonored Him and disobeyed Him. 
the way that we pray and continue to pray for pardon and the strength of grace and the way that we have a new purpose, a new commitment and endeavor by the supply of the Spirit to walk before God and others in a good, righteous, and pleasing way. So this repentance unto life is a firm commitment to turn from the sin that is now detestable to us, that is now repugnant to us, because our attitudes, our affections have been changed by the grace of the Spirit. Not perfectly in this life, but surely, gradually, that that as He continues to renovate our hearts and our minds, that we more and more hate the evil things that we once were committed to, and love more and more the actual obedience, walking in God's way, following after Christ and His good pleasures, His good purposes. Paragraph 4. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives, upon the count of this body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. So, as we continue to sin, to fall, to fail throughout this life, because of the continued weaknesses of our flesh, the continued temptation that, that attacks us from without and within, we have to make a, a daily effort, a daily intent to repent of those sins, to put that sin to death, to put off the old man, and to put on the new in Christ Jesus. That our repentance must go throughout the course of our lives, and even to try and rid ourselves of even the first motions of sin, the roots of these problems. And so it's our duty to repent of particular sins particularly, so that when we confess to God, we don't just say, God, I've done what is wrong, please forgive me. That what we, we acknowledge the specific wrongdoings that we have committed in an effort to put those specific sins to death in our lives, to rid ourselves of those things. So we should try uh, our best to examine ourselves in a healthy way in light of God's saving mercy and His restoring grace so that we would, we would have a firm and clear view of the reality of our sins. So that when we confess to God, we're not just saying, I've done bad things, please forgive me, or I've been, I've been mean, or I've been selfish, but that the more that we become aware of particular sins in our lives that have to be repented of, then we should bring those particular sins to God and ask for His deliverance and restoration from those things. So, for example, when we're praying to God, we shouldn't just say, Lord, I was selfish today, please forgive me. That's a great place to start. But we should also go on to say, Lord, I used my time today for my own selfish pleasure rather than seeking to show love and kindness to my family, that I was, I was lazy rather than helpful, or that today I was angry, Lord, with my coworker because I feel like they didn't give me the honor that I was rightly deserved for my contribution to this project. That as we're aware of particular instances of sin and particular patterns of sin, that we should recognize those things, we should repent of those things, and we should seek God's grace to be free of those things. Repenting of particular sins, particularly. Paragraph 5. Such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers to salvation. 
that although there's no sin so small, but that it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on those who repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So the provision that God has given to us through his covenant of grace, through our salvation, which he has accomplished through Jesus Christ, he has made a full and perfect atonement for us. He has satisfied the demands of God's law. He has atoned fully for all of our sins and transgressions so that we have, are given the grace to persevere. And even in the midst of our trials and temptation, we would press on. And that even though we still continue to sin, that those sins that we fall into as believers, which does still happen, those sins do not result in our damnation. Those sins do not cause us to lose our justification, to fall out of God's favor, to lose our eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. Though there is no sin that is so small that it doesn't deserve God's just condemnation, there is no sin that doesn't deserve an eternity of hell. There is also no sin that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for those who believe. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, not for past or present or future sins. This is not to give us license to go on sinning. This whole paragraph is on turning from sin and turning to a new obedience in Christ. But it does give us the assurance that when we fall, Christ does not abandon us to our sins for us who believe. That if we have been brought to faith by the grace of God to see Christ and believe his gospel, that he is working to renew our hearts and minds and lives so that we don't continue in these sins day after day, but that he is renovating us. And when we do fall, when we do stumble, we have a perfect advocate, an intercessor before the Father, who is able to uphold us and restore us still. So that is chapter 15 of Repentance unto Life and Salvation. Now to chapter 16 of Good Works. This is a counterpart that we are turning from our sin and repentance. We are turning to good works in our new life of obedience. None of this is to earn God's favor, to merit God's blessing and grace, because there's no such thing as merited grace. Grace is always a free, unmerited gift. That's the nature of grace. But our good works are something that manifest as fruit of our new life in Christ. So chapter 16, paragraph 1. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as have no warrant thereof, or are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon pretense of good intentions. So it first goes to define what good works are, what makes a work good, what makes something that we do pleasing in God's sight. Well, good works are that which God has commanded for us to do, which he has revealed to us by his word and spirit through the law written on our hearts and written on the pages of Holy Scripture, what he has commanded us. The scriptures contain what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God has required of men. That's also from the Catechism. But these good works, they are therefore defined by God and not by our good intentions or inventions or pretenses. 
that we cannot devise new good works by our own imaginations. We can't do something that seems good to us, that has no merit or warrant in God's word, and say that it's a good thing that we therefore must do. That if I say that we have to stand on one leg and hop while we sing in church, and that's a good work by my own invention, by whatever leaps of logic that I have, I can't say that standing on your leg and jumping during worship is a good work that God commands of us. Because God has not commanded that. That is not something he's revealed for us to do. That's not something he's called us to. That is simply my human invention and my imposition on other people, which is wrong. We as human beings don't have the right to invent good works. And so if someone tells you that there is something that you have to do to please God or something that you can't do in order to please God, and that has no warrant or basis in God's word, then you have no obligation to obey them or to listen to them. Good works are not based on our good intentions, nor our blind zeal, but on what God has actually called us to by his word. Paragraph two, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereto, that having that fruit of holiness, they may have to the end eternal life. So, our good works, the things that we do in obedience to God's commands to us, which are done according to what he has actually commanded, are the fruit and evidence of true and living faith. This is how we, we interpret Scripture according to Scripture, how we have passages saying that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ, not of our own work, not of our own doing, not of our own merit, nor could we ever, but also that faith without works is dead, that a faith that does not result in a transformed heart and mind and life is not a true faith at all. And so we have this balance that a true faith will inevitably result in a true change of life and good works as the fruit of that changed heart. So that we can truly say that if someone only ever lives in sin and disobedience but claims to be a true believer, they don't have any grounds for that claim. It's not that good works would make them a believer, but rather than they lack the fruit and evidence of true faith in life. That by these good works, believers manifest their thankfulness. We obey God out of gratitude, not in order to earn his favor or increase our justification. We never could. We obey in thankfulness and gratitude towards what God has done for us in our salvation. We do these good works in order to strengthen our own assurance that as we seek more and more to be conformed by God's Spirit to the image and character of Christ, we do this to see God's grace continue to flourish in our own lives, which does strengthen our assurance. We do these good works to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ, to build one another up, so that as we grow in grace, we would lead others as well that we would encourage them to grow and to trust and to believe and to obey. 
that we should, by our good works, adorn the profession of the gospel so that unbelievers would see our lives and how our lives have been changed by a new and living faith in Christ Jesus, that we would adorn the gospel by living in accordance with the teachings of Christ, that by our love and service and holiness of living, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, not in a self-righteous or legalistic or pharisaical way, but in a way that shows the change of heart that God has truly worked in us. We do these good works to stop the mouths of the adversaries, that those who hate God and therefore hate his word and his people, when they would bring charges against us, it would be truly because the word is a stumbling block to them, because they don't believe, and not because there's something that we have done in our sin and selfishness that is a stumbling block to them. We do it to glorify God, whose workmanship we are created in Christ Jesus from good works. That's back to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We are saved by grace through faith, but we have been saved to good works that God has prepared for us. That it is not our works that save us, but being saved, God has prepared works for us. Paragraph 3. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereto. Besides the graces that they've already received, there is a necessary and actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. Yet they are not thereupon to grow, to grow negligent, as if they weren't bound to perform any duty, unless a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is within them. So what this is saying here is that our ability to do these good works is by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, who strengthens us and sanctifies us and continues to make us more like Jesus Christ. So that he is the one who is fueling and motivating and stirring us to new life in Christ. But that doesn't mean that if we don't feel uh, the strength of the Spirit in a given moment, that that makes us, uh, that gives us freedom to just sit back and wait for Him to give us a special sense of conviction. We know what we're supposed to do, that we don't have uh, the right of the, the spiritual pacifists to just wait for a special motion of the Spirit in my life to do something that I know He's called us to. Love your neighbor, serve your family, go to church. These are things that God has clearly commanded us in His Word. So we don't need a, a special motion of the Spirit to drive us to these things. We simply must be faithful with what we know He's commanded and trust the grace of God to continue enabling us to do so. Paragraph 4. They who in their obedience attain the greatest height that is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much of which duty they are bound to do. So this is counteracting the specific Roman Catholic teaching that there are those, those special saints who are able in this life to so perfectly and fully obey God's law 
that they even go above and beyond what he has commanded. And in going above and beyond what God has commanded, they add additional merit and grace to themselves. That, you know, if if God requires of us 100 points of obedience and they obey to 110 points, that they're, they're earning 10 points of merit for themselves. That's kind of a crude way to put the discussion, but we must reject this as an unbiblical concept because we know from Scripture that all of us continue to fall short of the glory of God, that none of us has fully or perfectly in any sense or any moment fulfilled all of God's commands, that none of us through any fashion are able to earn God's favor through our obedience, but more so that we fall short every day and in every way. We must be continually dependent upon His grace, never seeking to earn His favor or even to earn a positive blessing for ourselves by being so good and so obedient. That is a fool's errand. It's an impossibility. And to think that you have arrived at a place where you've done above and beyond what God requires is an arrogant thing to think. Paragraph 5. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God, by reason of the great disproportion that's between them and the glory to come, than the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins, that when we have done all that we can, we have but done our duty and are unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from His Spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they can endure the severity of God's punishment. So this goes to affirm again that even our best works are still filthy rags in comparison with the absolute holiness and justice of God. This is something that we must, in humble honesty and, and in sincerity, realize that because of the transcendence of God, because of how high and holy and lifted up that He is, that we can never reach up to Him by our own obedience. That even the good works that we do are done because of the working of the Spirit in and through us. And as they are done through us, they are still done imperfectly so. It is only by grace through faith that we can do what is right and pleasing in His sight. That because our works is not anywhere close to earning eternal life because nothing that we can do can detract from the guilt of our sin. It's impossible for us to earn this favor in God's sight. If, if you had someone go to a judge and they were clearly guilty of a certain crime and their defense was, but look at all the good stuff that I've done as well, would they be innocent or would they be guilty? If someone goes and robs a store and they say, yes, judge, I did it, but also I help at a food pantry every Saturday. I have for years. Well, none of their good deeds, good imperfectly as they may, as they may be, none of them cancel out the justice that is demanded by the sins that they have committed, by the crime that they have committed. So no matter how much of their good deeds that they've done, if they are truly guilty of this crime, they must serve the punishment for it. So our good deeds in themselves are still tinged by imperfection and weakness. None of them can merit positively the eternal life promised to us by grace in the gospel. Paragraph 6, 
Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Our good works are accepted to God, are acceptable by God, because we perform these good works as the adopted sons and daughters of God through our union with Christ Jesus. That our best works, imperfect as they may be, are acceptable in His sight because He sees Christ in us and He sees us in Christ. It's like the, the, the picture that a child paints for their parent and the parent goes and hangs them on the fridge. Even if the picture is honestly kind of cruddy, it's not really worth displaying in any sense. It's made acceptable and pleasing to the parent because it comes from their beloved child. That our good gifts, our good works, our good deeds, though they are imperfect in this life, they are pleasing and acceptable in the sight of the Father because we are pleasing and acceptable through Christ the Son. Far from making us downcast and despair and morbidly introspective, these doctrines should encourage us all the more boldly to seek to obey Christ so that God may, may bless us further, that he find more and more pleasure in us as his children. Knowing that we are accepted by grace through faith, we have a firm foundation on which to seek his continual pleasure in us. Paragraph 7. Works done by unregenerate men, the lost, although for the matter of them may be things which God commands, and of good both to themselves and to others, yet because they do not proceed from a heart purified by faith, nor done in a right manner according to the word, nor to the right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet fit to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So we've spoken of good works that are acceptable to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We see now in this last paragraph works that are never acceptable to God because they are not done in faith. Scripture says that whatever is not done in faith is sin. Anything, even things that God has commanded us to do, are still done by people who lack faith, who lack new life in Christ, are done imperfectly and selfishly, not according to God's word, not by the power of his spirit, not accepted in his son, not to the ultimate end of God's glory, and therefore cannot be considered truly good in God's sight. Yes, by God's common grace, unbelievers do all sorts of great things, amazing things, charitable things, kind, loving things. There are people, I'm sure, who don't believe in God, who are, in appearances, more service-minded, more open-hearted, more love and kind than I am. But this doesn't make them more acceptable in God's sight. Because their merit will never be enough to reach God's perfect, righteous standard. None of these can make a person fit to receive the grace of God. No unbeliever makes themselves worthy of God's grace through their obedience. Because grace is never merited. 
Grace is always the free gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace always comes to us as an act, as a, as a gift, and never through anything that we have done to deserve it and to earn it. So for us who have been called to faith in Jesus Christ through the working of his spirit and the preaching of his gospel, let us continue to turn from our sin, to hate and detest it, to seek to put sin and patterns of sin to death in our lives, even the, the most deep roots and motions of sin. Let us also turn from that sin unto God in a life of holiness and obedience, that as His beloved children, we may give Him greater glory. We may better serve and love our friends, our spouses, our neighbors, our co-workers, especially other believers in Christ Jesus. Let us turn from sin and make a new endeavor into obedience, not working to earn God's favor, but working from God's favor. Thanks for joining us again for this lesson, and I hope to see you again soon.